Good morning, Calvary family. Today's word from the Lord is found in the Pew Bibles on page 966. Make sure we give everyone time to get there. Are we there? All right. <laughs> Hallelujah. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech, and in the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as children, widen your hearts also. The word of the Lord. Okay, good morning, everybody. It's a beautiful day. I was thinking we could do class outside today. So just everyone out on the Lake Street, I'll see you out there. No, don't leave, don't leave. Um, thank you to Pastor Johnny for preaching last week from uh, Luke chapter 4. It was a great sermon. And this morning we are back in 2 Corinthians, our 2 Corinthians sermon series, Yet Always Rejoicing. And maybe you caught the title verse in verse 10 of the passage we read this morning, Sorrowful Yet Always Rejoicing. But today we are uh, continuing on in chapter 5 uh, with the theme of the ministry of reconciliation. And three weeks ago when we 
restarted the second Corinthians sermon series, which we began last year, and we just picked it up again three weeks ago. We began in chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul talks about God's ministry of reconciliation to the world in Christ. And then two weeks ago, we looked at verses 19 and 20, and Paul's ministry of reconciliation to the Corinthians. And so this morning, we want to continue on in the theme of reconciliation, but looking at our ministry of reconciliation out into the world. So in Matthew 28, and then again in Acts chapter 1, just before Jesus ascends back up to the Father, he calls his disciples to himself, and he gives them instructions about what they're to be doing while he's gone. And that's where we learn of the Great Commission that the church is called to take the gospel out into the whole world. And so Jesus' disciples did, and in doing so, that's how you and I, who live on an entirely other continent, across a huge ocean, nearly 2,000 years later, have come to hear and understand of the person of Jesus. So though some Christians have a, a formal apostolic or pastoral or professional role in the church as clergy, all Christians are called to the task of the Great Commission, or in the words that Paul is using here in 2 Corinthians 5, to the ministry of reconciliation. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this passage that's been read for us as a model of Paul's ministry of reconciliation to the Corinthians, as a model for us about how we are to engage in our ministry of reconciliation to the world. And in this passage, I've identified eight principles or characteristics of Paul's ministry that I think are helpful for us as we consider our ministry of reconciliation. And my goal uh, when I began preparing this sermon last week, was to get through all eight principles in a single sermon. But then I quickly realized that I was biting off more than you all would be able to chew, and so uh, the sermon would be two hours long if I did that. So I decided to split the sermon in half and to just get through the first four principles this morning. But by Friday afternoon, I was still on verse 21, and I had to cut the thing in half again. So this morning, we are springing briskly forward in our 2 Corinthians sermon series, focusing just on verse 21, where we find these first two principles. So in 521, Paul writes, For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, here's what was slowing me down a little bit last week. There are two ways that Bible scholars interpret this verse, and I'm actually not sure which is the correct interpretation. Some interpreters take 521 as Paul revealing the message of reconciliation, and others interpreters interpret 521 as Paul revealing the method of reconciliation. So I went back and forth, and I was undecided, because I think both of these interpretations have great gospel truth and have great application. And then I was reflecting on something I had once read in St. Augustine, where he remarked that when you come upon a passage that's difficult to interpret, as long as the interpretation leads to deeper love for God and neighbor, then the Holy Spirit can use it. So I'm going to give you both interpretations and one for each principle, and I'm just going to trust that the Holy Spirit will take whichever interpretation you need this morning and will apply it into your life. So the first half of this sermon 
staying in, in verse 21. We're going to stay in verse 21, really, the whole sermon. The first half of the sermon is going to be the first interpretation of verse 21. The second half of the sermon is going to be the second interpretation of 21. All right, so the first interpretation. In this first interpretation, Paul is revealing the message or the content of the message of reconciliation, what he preaches. So in the preceding verses, verses 18, 19, 20, which was read for us, Paul has been speaking about this ministry and message of reconciliation. In verse 20, he refers to himself and his fellow apostles as ambassadors for Christ who preach the message of reconciliation. And then in verse 21, Paul is giving us the content of the message of reconciliation. Paul preaches the message. What is the message? The message that God, for our sake, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Paul, in this reading, is giving us the message of the gospel. In God's great love for us, he sent Jesus, who was without sin, to take upon himself the just consequences of our sins so that we could take upon ourselves the just consequences of his righteousness. So the New Testament teaches all throughout that Jesus himself knew righteousness, but he did not know sin. And just as equally, the New Testament teaches that we knew sin, but did not know righteousness. And the consequences that we faced for our sins were justly deserved, and the consequences that Jesus faced for his righteousness are also justly deserved. But if we got what we justly deserved, and he got what he justly deserved, we'd be in hell and Jesus would be in glory without us. <clears throat> but the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus unjustly took upon himself the just consequences of our sins so that we could unjustly take upon ourselves the just consequences of his righteousness. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we gave our sin to Jesus, and he gave his righteousness to us. And the Bible's metaphors for sin and salvation help us understand and make sense of this. Sometimes the Bible uses legal or financial metaphors to describe the problem of sin. We owed a debt to God's law that we couldn't pay. And Jesus paid off the debt by accepting our legal punishment, thus freeing us from our legal jeopardy. So this is the point that Paul is making in Galatians 3, verses 13 through 14. He writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Jesus was hanged on a tree. So in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham, God's gospel promises that would go out into the whole world, come to the Gentiles, and we receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So we transgress God's law. The curse of the law is hanging over us, but Jesus becomes a curse for us, accepting our punishment to free us from the curse of the law so that we can receive the promised blessings of the gospel. Or sometimes the Bible uses the metaphor of sin as a disease, a sickness, or a wound. So we were sick and dying, and Jesus took our sickness upon himself and gave us his health. So in Matthew 8, 17, Matthew reaches back 
the prophet Isaiah and speaks of Jesus as taking our illnesses upon himself and bearing our diseases. And in both metaphors, Jesus takes upon himself our problem and he gives us his solution. We gave him our sin and all of its consequences, and he gives us his righteousness and all of its consequences. And theologians refer to this as the great exchange. And this great exchange was always part of God's redemptive plan to save humanity. So we can go back into the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, written more than 500 years before Jesus and the New Testament. And Isaiah 53, in prophesying about the coming salvation that would come through Christ, actually kind of weaves together both of these metaphors. Let me read it. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it and you listen. Isaiah 53, this is verses 5 through 11. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But, and here's the gospel news, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. So Jesus gives himself as a sacrificial lamb, as a guilt offering to redeem those who had fallen under the just condemnation of God's law and had become sick and sore, as we sing in our songs, about uh, with the wound of sin. And he frees us from the condemnation of God's law, and he heals our wounds with his own wounds. So he didn't deserve our sin. We didn't deserve his righteousness. But he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, most of us here this morning are Christians, and most of us here this morning, we believe and accept this foundational truth. Because this is the very beginning of the Christian life. This is where the whole Christian life starts. A recognition of our own sinfulness and Jesus' offer of free salvation and Him taking our place. But even though most of us know it, I don't want to rush past it because no doubt in a church our size with folks coming from all sorts of different backgrounds and understandings, there are some here this morning who have not yet benefited from this great exchange. Many people think that you get God's righteousness by earning it or by meriting it, deserving it in some way. That if you go to church or you keep God's commands, you just generally be a good person, then God will give you his righteousness. 
But that's not how we get God's righteousness. So listen to what Paul says in Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And Paul is saying that we are reconciled to God as a free gift of grace, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. The whole point of the gospel is that we don't have works of righteousness, certainly not works of righteousness sufficient by which to purchase God's righteousness on our behalf and to have our sins removed. Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, the same basic idea, that we are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God apart from works so that no one can boast. Salvation is a free gift of grace. And the hard gospel truth is that we are spiritually bankrupt beyond our resources to pay. We are in legal jeopardy and we have no more courts of appeal in human standards. We are spiritually sick and we are beyond our resources to heal. And so we need God's righteousness freely given to us as a gift of grace. And that is what he offers to us in Christ. Other people think that the Christian life is nothing more than just Christian behavior. And they haven't received the righteousness of God either. But the Christian life is not Christian behavior. The Christian life is Christ. It's only when we freely receive the living person of Jesus, who is the source of true life and righteousness, that we are reconciled to God and able to live a life of true righteousness. So we don't have righteousness on our own, but when we receive Jesus, who is righteous, He puts His righteousness inside of us, and now we actually have righteousness that we can begin to live out into the world. Jesus, though, doesn't bring God's righteousness to us. Jesus is God's righteousness. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Jesus has become for us our righteousness and sanctification and redemption from God. So you can't get rid of your guilt and sin and shame simply by behaving like a Christian any more than you can get rid of your financial debt by spending money like a rich person or get rid of your cancer by acting like a healthy person. Your behavior can't resolve the fundamental jeopardy in which you find yourself. You can only get rid of your guilt and sin and shame by believing and receiving Christ into your life as a free gift. Christ who is the atonement for our sins and the health of God for our soul. And this is what Paul means then when he says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
So maybe this morning you hear everything that I've been saying and you say to yourself, I'm not sure that I've ever received Jesus as a free gift of faith. Maybe I've been thinking, actually, now that I consider it, that I've been thinking of this great exchange as something that I earn, that if I follow enough of God's commands and do enough things and go to church enough and show God that I'm serious, then He'll forgive my sins and He will grant me His righteousness. And you're trying to earn God's righteousness rather than receive it as a free gift. Or maybe you say, I've received Christianity. I'm committed to Christian morality and such, but I'm not sure I've ever received Christ. And if that's you this morning, or you've just been trying to earn your redemption, earn your salvation, or you have reduced the gospel message to just your mere behavior, but you've never actually met the living person of Jesus, then I would say to you, don't leave church this morning without receiving the full ministry of reconciliation. And the whole gospel, the whole ministry of reconciliation begins with God's love. Look back at the beginning of verse 21. Paul says, for our sake. It's for our sake, for my sake and for your sake that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He didn't come and suffer for his sake. He came and suffered for our sake because he loves us. I mentioned that a number of weeks ago, I've been reading an Eastern Orthodox theologian from the 14th century named Nicholas Cabasilius, but he writes about the love of God quite a bit. And here in this couple of sentences, I think he captures so beautifully God's love for us. He writes this, It was God's love for men that emptied God. He does not stay in his own place and call the bond slave to himself. He seeks him in person by coming down to him. He who is rich reaches the pauper's hovel, and he displays his love by approaching in person. He seeks love in return and does not withdraw when he is treated with disdain. He is not angry over ill treatment, but even when he has been repulsed, I just love how he writes this. He sits by our door and does everything to show us that he loves us, even enduring suffering and death to prove it. The story of the gospel is that humanity has disdained the love of God. When we heard about it from afar, we rejected it, but God has come down himself in the person of the Son, and he knocks on our door And when we refuse to open it, he doesn't go away. He sits at our door. And when we ill-treat him, he doesn't disdain us and leave us, but he does everything in his power to show us that he loves us, even enduring suffering and death to prove it. And this is the message of the gospel, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you've never received Christ in the gospel truly as a free gift, or you've reduced Christianity to mere morality or Christian practices, then let me encourage you this morning. 
to receive Christ truly and freely as a gift. Maybe you say, I don't know how to pray. I'm not very good at prayer. I'm not sure what words I should say. Well, we'll put in your bulletin a prayer that you could use. It's, there's no one right way to receive Christ. What matters is the posture of the heart and a an understanding of desiring to give yourself to the Lord and receiving Him freely. But maybe if you're looking for words to say, you can use the words that are there in the bulletin. Something like, Lord Jesus, I see that I need you in my life. I've made poor decisions that have hurt myself and others. I've done things that I know I shouldn't, and I haven't done things I know I should. I've made mistakes I can't undo. I long to be released from my sin, and I know that all my own efforts at self-righteousness are fruitless. Thank you for loving me just as I am, for dying on the cross as a sacrifice for my sins. Thank you for rising again and giving me your righteousness. I give my life wholly to you. Please forgive me and come into my life and make me who you want me to be. And if you pray that prayer from an honest and sincere heart, then Christ receives you. God receives you in Christ unto himself. There's two aspects to conversion. There's kind of an internal private aspect of conversion. The gospel goes out to the whole world, but we don't convert en masse as a race of humanity. We convert individually as we respond to the Spirit's call of the gospel into our lives. And so that can happen at any moment and any time for any person. It can happen right now, even as you read that offering prayer, or afterwards if you take some time alone with yourself for God, or later in the service, or tomorrow, or next week, or next year. That that private moment of internal conversion is available freely to everyone at any moment. You don't have to be in church for it. But then when we've responded to the internal invitation of the Lord in this private moment of conversion, then we're invited then into an external ceremony of conversion, and that's what baptism is, where we formally and publicly join the people of God. So I invite you to consider the invitation that God extends to you even in this moment of private conversion, if that's something for you. So the first thing we need to do in order to minister the gospel, the ministry of reconciliation like Paul, the first thing we need to do is we need to understand the message and make sure that we have received the message. So that's the first way to interpret verse 21. Now on to the second interpretation. In the second interpretation, We can read Paul as revealing not simply the message of reconciliation, but the method of the ministry of reconciliation. So this second interpretation hangs on Paul's use of an apostolic we, we might say. Now, most of the time when I'm preaching to you all on a Sunday morning and I say something like, we need to love God or we need to trust God and follow his commandments, I don't mean we elders or we ministry staff, I mean, we Christians, all of us. I put myself down on your level, on the same level as you. But throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul is leaning hard into his distinct role as the shepherd and the apostle to the Corinthians. Because, as you will recall, if you've been here for our series, his apostleship is the very thing that's being called into question. The super apostles, these false teachers that have come into Corinth behind him, have been casting aspersions on Paul and saying that he's not really a true apostle. And so Paul was writing 2 Corinthians in large part to defend his identity as a true apostle in the life of the Corinthians. And so when Paul uses the language of we, he is very often meaning an apostolic we. 
He's talking about himself and his fellow apostles who are ministering true apostleship, the true ministry of reconciliation in the lives of the Corinthians. And so he's using this apostolic we all throughout chapters 5 and 6. And we can see that if we look here in verse 20, which is read for us. So look at verse 20. Paul says, when he says, we are God's ambassadors, God making his appeal through us, he means by we, we apostles. He's saying, and this is evident by the next sentence, because then he implores the Corinthians, you Corinthians, to be reconciled to God. So he's saying, we apostles are sent ones. That's what the word apostle means. It means to be a sent one. So we apostles have been sent by God. We're ambassadors of God. And we have come to you on Christ's behalf, and we are imploring you, Corinthians, to be reconciled to God. So he's using the apostolic we in 520. And then on the other side of 521, in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul is again clearly using the apostolic we. So look here in 6.1. Paul then says, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. We apostles appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So when we interpret 521, which is sandwiched between these two uses of the apostolic we, some scholars suggest that Paul is still using the apostolic we in 521, which makes sense. So then when he says, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, this interpretation suggests that the our and the us and the we in verse 21 refers to Paul and his fellow apostles. It's still the apostolic we. So in this interpretation, Paul is essentially saying in 521, God sent Jesus to become the righteousness of God for the sake of us apostles and so that we apostles could become the righteousness of God for the sake of you Corinthians. But what would it mean for Paul and his fellow apostles to become the righteousness of God for the sake of the Corinthians? Well, the expression righteousness of God comes from the Old Testament, and the term or the expression is most often used, maybe always used, a little bit of debate there, but it's most often used to refer to God's saving actions on behalf of His covenant people. So in the Old Testament, a king would be considered righteous insofar as he took care of his kingdom and the people of his kingdom. So if, let's say, the city of a righteous king was being besieged by a foreign enemy and the king sent his general to deliver the city that was being besieged, the king would be acting righteously on behalf of his people when he sends the general. So God's righteousness then doesn't refer to God's morality or God's integrity, much less God's law-keeping. There's no law above God that God is having to keep. Most simply, it refers to God's covenant salvation or God's covenant deliverance. So this idea of God's righteousness as salvation can be seen clearly, I think most clearly in the Psalms and then later in the prophets where it's spoken of quite a bit. So Psalm 4.1. The psalmist writes, O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Or Psalm 31.1, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Or Isaiah 46.13, 
The Lord, speaking, says, I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. Or again, the Lord speaking in Isaiah 51, 5, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out. And there's dozens and dozens and hundreds of these uses of this term righteousness in this way. So as such, when the Israelites or the psalmists or whoever are being persecuted and oppressed and they're pleading for God's righteousness, they're pleading for God's righteousness because it's in God's righteousness that God comes to save them. All right, but here's the gold nugget in all of this. Because when the righteous king sends his army commander to deliver the the besieged city, the delivering general that the king sends isn't simply bringing the king's righteousness, he becomes the king's righteousness. And in this same spirit, the prophet Jeremiah prophesies about how God will send his top general, as it were, his deliverer down into the world to save his besieged people. So the whole world has been taken over by the by the enemy, we're a besieged people, and God will send deliverance in the form of the great captain of heaven, Jesus, and he will come to deliver us. And when he comes, Jeremiah says, he will be called God's righteousness. So listen here to the prophecy. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So this messianic figure clearly referring to Jesus, when he comes, he would be called the righteousness of the Lord. And that's the point that Paul is making about Jesus very specifically in 1 Corinthians 1.30 when he calls Jesus our righteousness from God. So back to chapter 5.21 in 2 Corinthians, what does it mean then when Paul says that he and his fellow apostles have become the righteousness of God? Well, it means that as true ambassadors of Jesus, they not only preach the message of reconciliation, they themselves embody and live the message of reconciliation. And that's very consistent with how Paul frames up his understanding of discipleship in 2 Corinthians. All throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul is working with a sort of golden chain vision of discipleship. God in Christ disciples the apostles into the image of the Son, and then the apostles in Christ disciple the church into the image of the Son. And then the church in Christ disciples the world into the image of the Son. This is the vision that Paul has throughout 2 Corinthians. And each link in the chain is a disciple being discipled who is discipling others so that the whole of humanity with the goal of becoming conformed to the image of the Son. And all throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul is especially concerned to make the point that central to this vision of discipleship is burden-bearing. The disciple is tasked with bearing the burden of the one that they are discipling. And in doing so, the discipler is an image of the Son who bears our burdens on the cross. So in this chain of burden-bearing discipleship, this is how the gospel flows out into the world. So turn back just a page or two in your Bible 
to 2 Corinthians 1, 3. After the niceties, Paul's and his greetings and uh, verse 1 and 2, Paul begins his entire letter with this sort of vision of discipleship that flows from the Father out into the world. Listen to what he writes. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts all of us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's suffering so that through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So our hope for you is unshaken. In Paul's vision of discipleship, the comfort of God is passed from the Father to the Son to the apostles to the church and then ultimately out into the world. Because the gospel isn't merely a message that we pass on like a game of telephone. The gospel is a person. Jesus is the gospel that we pass on. Jesus is the comfort of God. Jesus is the righteousness of God. Jesus is the peace of God and the hope of God and the salvation of God. And it's only as we receive Him, the person, that we become one with Him and become conformed to Him that we become true ambassadors for Christ. So being a true ambassador for Christ isn't memorizing facts about the gospel. Being a true ambassador for Christ is receiving the content of the gospel, which is Christ Himself, and becoming conformed to the image of the Son so that we become as He is, and He is the righteousness of God out into the world. And so as we become conformed to Him, we become the righteousness of God out into the world. So in this second interpretation of 521, Paul's basic message to the Corinthians is this. Jesus is the righteousness of God. Jesus bore the burden of us apostles so that we apostles could become the righteousness of God in Him. And now that we apostles have become the righteousness of God in Christ, we apostles are bearing the burden of you Corinthians so that you Corinthians can become the righteousness of God in Christ. And as you Corinthians become the righteousness of God in Christ, you are called to bear the burdens of the world so that the world can become the righteousness of God in Christ. All of which is to say the point of this second interpretation is that we don't simply preach the gospel. We embody the gospel. We live the gospel. Or yea, verily, we become the gospel, which is precisely why it's so necessary that we first receive the gospel, namely Jesus, before we can preach the gospel. Because we're not just preaching a message, we're preaching and embodying a person. And if we're going to be heralds of God's free redemptive righteousness given to us for our sake, we need to become God's free redemptive righteousness given to others for their sake. So, to what degree does your life reflect the righteousness of God to the world around you? And here I'm not simply asking, are you living morally or do you live with integrity? That's important, but becoming the righteous righteousness of God for the sake of others doesn't mean simply living morally. It means embodying God's sacrificial love, His saving actions to the world. 
It means bearing with the suffering of those to whom we are bringing the message of God's reconciliation. This is so much what Paul is talking about in his letter. The contrast that Paul makes between himself as a true apostle of Christ and the super apostles as false apostles of Christ is Paul saying, because I am willing to suffer for you. I am suffering and bearing your burdens so that the righteousness of God can come to you, so that you can become the righteousness of God. The super apostles, they look all good on the outside, but they're not willing to suffer for you. In fact, they make you suffer for them. They're not true apostles. If you want to know what a true apostle is, you look at Jesus. Jesus doesn't make us suffer for Him. He suffers for us. He bears our burdens on Himself, taking upon Himself our sin and sorrow and our brokenness, and He then gives us His blessings. And this is what we are to do in the lives of others, and it's what I'm doing to you, Corinthians, Paul is saying. So Paul is keen to make sure that the Corinthians understand that what it is to bear or to, to uh, bring the message of reconciliation is to bear the burdens of others. So to rework the quote from Nicholas Cabasilius, becoming the righteousness of God means emptying ourselves in love for the sake of others. It means not staying in our own, not staying in our own place and preaching the gospel from afar, but coming down in person, even down to the pauper's hovel. It means displaying our love for others and not withdrawing when we are treated with disdain. It means not being angry over ill treatment. It means that even when we have been repulsed, we sit at the door and we do everything to show our love even enduring suffering and death to prove it. It's a high and holy calling that Jesus has given us to love others as he has loved us. And it will cost us to love others in the way that Jesus has loved us. But that's okay, because Jesus has paid the cost of the love that we have to spend to love like he loved. The love with which we are called to love others is the exact same love that God has poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We don't love with our love. We love with Christ's love. And Christ's love is Christ. It's His presence in our lives that is the love with which we love others. And so we give ourselves freely, not because we're so great or we have so many resources, but because Christ is so great and He is the infinite resource that enables us to love others freely. To sit at the door when we are repulsed and to do everything that we can to show the love of Christ inside of us. So listen, we don't gather together every Sunday simply to hear a message or a sermon about the facts of the righteousness of God. We gather together every Sunday because we have become in Christ and are striving to become more fully manifestations of the righteousness of God for each other and for the sake of the world around us. And my prayer for all of us is that when people walk into this church on a Sunday morning, 
or they walk into our lives Monday through Saturday, that they would leave the encounter with Calvary or the encounter with us individually struck by the power of God's sacrificial love and the great lengths to which he and we in him are willing to go to bring redemption. God, give us, give us more of your love. We need it for our own sake. We recognize that we fall so short of what it is that we should be and what we should do, and we receive your love freely as a gift. You're so kind. You sent Christ down from heaven and we wouldn't open the door. You just so patiently have waited for us. You just want to come in and be with us and love us. And I pray you would help us to receive it as a free gift. And then in receiving it, Lord, I pray that you would help us extend that same love to the world around us. God, give us grace for that in Christ. Keep shaping us. Keep drawing us closer to yourself. Step by step, bit by bit, keep shaping us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.